0: Hello, and welcome to Brain to Board. About four weeks ago, I decided to start designing a board game. About three weeks ago, I decided to start this podcast to document the thinking behind the game itself and the process of actually getting it out into the world. Even though I'm still pretty far from having all the pieces in place to start kickstarting the game, which I do plan to do, I think it's best for me to get an idea of all the associated costs as quickly as possible so I can figure out a realistic budget. A couple weeks ago, I requested a quote from the popular game manufacturer, Panda Game Manufacturing, to see what it might cost to get the game mass produced. I also looked into various posts about the cost of shipping the product to customers to see how much that would add to the process. This episode, I'm going to tell you a bit more about what I found out, and a few ways I've improved my game this week. Alright, let's start with some of the stuff about money. To get a quote for the game on Panda Game Manufacturing, I had to go onto their website, create like an account, um, and then like create a game and start just telling them basically what parts it's going to have. They have a whole system for picking out what parts you have and specifying dimensions and all all that kind of stuff. I wasn't exactly sure about all of the stuff I was going to need, but I was able to pick out a few of their pre-made parts and estimate the sizes of different components of the game. As far as picking out materials, I just kind of went with whatever was the most, not necessarily basic, but inexpensive, standard stuff. None of it is necessarily like really bad quality. Um, Some of the cards certainly could be printed in better quality, but I decided to just go with the cheapest stuff to print first, and it's all still fairly standard materials that aren't going to feel super cheap or anything, so it's totally fine. It took about two weeks for them to get back to me with the actual quote. They sent me an email and had a whole document Laying out like different costs and different times it would take to manufacture different things. Now I'm not going to be really able to use a lot of that stuff because I'm not actually planning to manufacture the game anytime soon. But it was good to get an idea of the total cost of the game. Before doing this, I had also sort of built my game in um, the Game Crafter, which is a on-demand board game printing service. So. They can sort of manufacture the game to some extent, but most of it is like custom making the different parts and custom printing, so it's a lot more expensive. The quote that Panda Game Manufacturing gave me was about one-third of what it would cost to make it at the Game Crafter, and that's totally understandable. I'm still planning to use the Game Crafter at various points along the way to make prototypes, but obviously I'm not going to try to print it as far as like something to sell to other people from there, because it would be a worse quality and it would be a lot more expensive. So I suppose if you're making your game, that could be sort of a good metric. I don't know exactly how it will work out. It probably depends a lot on the specifics of the game. But if you make it in something like the Game Crafter and... You haven't gone through the process of getting a quote from another game manufacturer. You can take that experience as at least my anecdotal evidence that it costs about a third of what it would cost at the Game Crafter to make it with Panda Game Manufacturing. Now, I'm sure various other manufacturing companies and stuff, they all probably have way different prices. So yeah, that's certainly not a rule by any means, but that is my experience and just for you to get an idea. Now let's talk about shipping a little bit. Shipping is the part that was somewhat surprisingly to me a lot more complicated and a bit more expensive than the actual manufacturing part. When you start thinking about how you're going to make a game, or at least for me, I was like, okay, so I'm going to have to design it. Like, I can do that pretty well. And I'm, you know, I can think about what the process for that is probably going to be. It's just going to be like, you know, making changes to the game, play testing, and all that stuff. That's pretty understandable. I didn't really know what the shipping was going to be like going into it, but it seems like using something like Panda Game Manufacturing, I, I'm referencing them because they're the only one I really know about right now, but I, I've heard of a lot of others, but they're the only one I've looked into seriously. Um, but using something like that, it's actually fairly easy to get all of your stuff set up to make the game. But shipping. Shipping is a lot. You basically have to manage getting your games from whatever factory you manufacture them in to different like distribution plants in different countries if you're going to do it internationally, which I plan to. And everything has different costs based on where it's going. And it seems like, at least on average, shipping the game is probably going to be about as expensive or a little bit more expensive than the cost of making the game. That was just really interesting for me to find out because like, it doesn't matter what you're shipping. Shipping is just a set cost based on the weight of whatever you're shipping. And board games are fairly heavy, so they cost money to ship. And it doesn't really have an economy of scale because the more stuff you ship, the more space it takes up. And it's kind of like the systems that are in place for shipping things already kind of function as an economy of scale just by the way they package everything. Like It doesn't matter what they're shipping. So if it's more of your stuff or some of your stuff and someone else's stuff, there's a little bit of an effect where if you're shipping more stuff, then you can do it less expensively. But it's not nearly as dramatic a difference as it is for like manufacturing. Like manufacturing, the price goes from what you would make on demand, do like a third to manufacture it. For shipping, it's like not anywhere close to that. It's still a pretty similar price, no matter if you're paying for shipping for an individual thing or for a whole bunch of things. Shipping is also a little weird on Kickstarter because the money pledged for shipping, you can have like an individual shipping cost, but it adds to the goal for your whole project. And that makes it so that calculating a goal is a little bit more difficult because like you don't know where people are going to buy it, so shipping could be more or less. And if you actually like allow people to pay the cost of shipping, and just have it be straight up the cost of what it takes to ship it to them, then that's money that's going towards your goal with zero profit margin. So if you get an unexpected amount of people shipping it to some remote place that is more expensive to ship to, your goal is going to get approached, and you might reach your goal, but you won't make as much profit as you expected to, so you won't make make up some other cost that you planned in. So you have to either sort of set your goal to be a bit higher than you would otherwise to account for that or you can sort of overcharge for shipping and have it so that even when you're shipping you're not just straight up giving someone the price it takes to ship to them you're also including a bit of an extra charge to make up that difference and you can either build that cost into like all of the shipping across the board and then that would probably just actually make it make it so that you get make a little more profit off the game Or you can build that into just like the remote places. So it's like if you want to ship it to here, that's more expensive. And then I'm also going to add like an additional charge on top of that uh, built into the shipping price to make sure I make up that difference and still make the same amount of profit on the game. Or you can overcharge to a place like the U.S., which um, tends to be pretty easy to ship to and the shipping tends to be lower prices. But if you overcharge there to make up that difference, then it evens out the pricing so that everyone has more or less similar Prices for shipping, and that can be a a good thing in terms of the image of the game. Like, if everyone sees that it's like, okay, shipping's pretty similar for everyone, it's not like, oh, just because I live in this one place, I have to pay way more for shipping. So, I feel like the optics of that are pretty good. Like, it looks good if you have similar shipping everywhere, but then you're overcharging like the majority of your customers rather than actually overcharging the people who it's more expensive to ship it to. So, that's a whole mess, and I have no idea how I'm going to navigate that yet. But it's just something I'm thinking about now and trying to figure out like which direction to go on that. I might even be misunderstanding the situation a little bit, so I need to look into it more, but that's my current read on it. Alright, so now that I've talked about all that, let's transition a little bit to talking about my game and the gameplay and the changes I've made this week. Because this was actually more what I wanted to focus on this episode, but then I just sort of ended up doing a lot of more of the money stuff and thinking about that more than I expected to. And that quote came in from the manufacturer to give me an idea of the price, so I figured I'd mention that all here while it's fresh in my mind. But this is what I was really focusing on this week. I've been sort of thinking about what it is that makes it so that I like board games more than video games. And that's not a set set in stone rule by any means. There are a lot of video games that I like a lot, a lot of board games that I like a lot. But I find that a well-designed board game really draws me into it a lot more. And I think part of the reason for that is that board games are basically, they have to be calculable by a human. So, the person playing needs to be able to not necessarily calculate like the best strategy, but every single interaction in the game. You need to understand what's going on, and it should be simple enough that you can figure out all the probabilities involved, and it's just a matter of whether or not you can do that looking far into the future, whether or not you're going to win a strategy game, for instance. In a video game, though, you can often do something, and there's a lot of calculations that are done at once that are completely invisible to you. So even in video games where it's driven by skill, a lot of the things in the game, like the movement of characters and stuff, is based on inputs from you, but then the input gets completely translated to something else. Whereas in a board game, any input you do, whatever the results of that are, you have to calculate them yourself and translate those into moving pieces around and stuff so you can see all of the translation that's happening. And again, I'm not trying to argue that... like board games are objectively better than video games, because that would be ridiculous. But I I feel like that's a big component in what makes board games fun for me. One of the problems, though, that can arise with this process is that board games can become less fun when those interactions take a long time, like when you have to do all those calculations and that whole process of moving stuff around and translating what you want to do into what happens on the board. If that takes a long time, that's not going to be fun because it's just going to be tedious. It'll feel like... You're making the game work rather than playing the game. And I noticed a point in my game where there was a little bit of that going on. You see, there's this mechanic with what are called the witness cards in my game. Uh, And these tell you which characters are like notice your activities and gain suspicion of you if you're doing something that is suspicious. The original witness mechanic in the game was that there was a deck for each area of five cards. And each card had one character on it. So you would draw two of those so that you could see which Witnesses are going to be in the room, basically, at the time. And you can plan which ones gain suspicion about you using that knowledge. The problem was you had to reset the Witness cards every time you added suspicion, which is something you're going to be doing a lot. So you had to reset the Witness cards, shuffle them all up, and then draw new ones. And just you had to do that a whole bunch of times. And with only a five-card deck, you kind of never feel like you shuffle it enough, so... There's always the tendency to want to overshuffle, and it just makes it take a long time. So I came up with a new mechanic to replace that, and it is pretty similar, and it changes the probabilities in the game a little bit, but not to any extent that really changes the way you play the game, and not it doesn't change the way anything works out, it's just Instead of shuffling the cards every time and drawing new ones, I assigned a number to each character, and then there's a global deck of cards that you draw from, and it's a much larger deck than just five cards, so you don't have to shuffle it very often. You just draw a new card off the top of that, and that tells you which witness is in the room, and you, like, draw two of them. So with that, instead of having the separate witness decks for each area, you only have one big deck that you shuffle once at the beginning of the game, and maybe, although you'll probably never get through that deck, maybe you have to shuffle it one more time. But other than that, you're just drawing through it. And it has like an even distribution of every number. So for instance, if a number has been coming up more often than, than another number, then that number is slightly less likely to come up in the future. But there's so many copies of each number in the deck that that's not really something you can use to predict it unless you're paying super close attention to the game, which probably wouldn't make it fun. I'm probably going to recommend against that in the rules. It approximates a system with an even distribution, um, like a fully random system with an even distribution where you could get any number at any time. It's not actually that, but the numbers of every card is great enough that any variations in the probabilities of getting a certain number sort of even out. I did a playtest of the game with this new mechanic in it, actually a physical playtest with like a new physical prototype I made. And, and the mechanic was much more playable, so it made it so that the whole game went a lot faster. And it was just, it was more fun. You got to flip these cards. There was a little bit more suspense even in it. It sort of added like a little element of like, I don't know, almost gambling sort of feeling like you really want this one number to come up and there's nothing you can do about it. It's the same mechanic as before, it's just you want a number to come up instead of a character, but somehow it feels like it's less likely to happen, or... It's, just, it's hard to describe, but the feeling changes based on drawing it from this much larger deck. I made a couple other changes. Um, For instance, one of the problems with the game was that the initial moves all tended to be pretty similar. So I added a new thing to the setup of the game where you basically just simulate the first couple turns with those actions that I noticed were basically the ideal way to start every game. It just does those for you in every room as part of setup. So you can do that really quickly. Saves you probably like five ten minutes of the game. And a little bit more about that physical game I made, the prototype. So my other prototypes that I've made have been with the board printed on just regular printer paper, and the cards were made with little inserts into card sleeves with regular playing cards behind them. The experience of playing that game was mechanically exactly the same as the new one, well, except for the minor changes I've made, but the feeling of it was a lot different, so that was good enough as a proof of concept to show that the game worked and was fun even in the abstract. But this new prototype I made was much better, and it made the game a lot more fun. I made it using cardstock for the boards, so they were much sturdier and just generally felt more, like, permanent and less thrown together. And blank cards, which I illustrated and wrote numbers on and stuff using Sharpie. So the whole board, instead of being printed out on just normal paper, was hand-drawn on cardstock, and all the cards were hand-drawn, and they had little illustrations by me. I'm a bad artist, but they were all stick figures, and they were kind of amusing. But this whole thing really added to the experience, and it made it more complete feeling, so that when I actually play the game and when I play it, it, it feels to me and the people I'm playing with like we're playing a real game, even though it's obviously all hand-drawn and thrown together. It's like you can see the time and effort that was put into actually making all these cards, and it gave the game a little more character. Having this physical prototype also allowed me to make a, a change to the game to use consistent card sizes. So this is something I've been trying to work on working into the game for a while. The old version of the game required a couple different card sizes just to make all the cards like fit on the board in the right way. But I came up with a way to make it so that you can use consistent card sizes, which is going to be nice for me for manufacturing and nice for people handling the game so that they don't have to try to work with all these different sizes at once. Basically, the cards that I needed to not take up a lot of space, I figured I could just put them underneath the board. Like you can slide them under the board and just have a little bit sticking out. That makes it so that the cards are easy to handle, but they don't really take up any room at all because they're just hidden under the board. That was a really good system for that. So overall, building the physical prototype and making the changes to make the game a little bit more playable has actually resulted in a much better game for physical play. The whole thing runs faster, it's more consistent, and you feel more like you're playing the game than that you are running the game, which I like. So that's about all for this episode. As always, you can email me at braindoboard at gmail.com if you want to get in touch. I release episodes of this podcast every Friday at about 10 a.m. Pacific Time. I'm actually recording this one after that time, so this one's obviously going to come out a little bit later, but I try to get them out on time, and at least it's going to come out every Friday. The music in this podcast is by TechnoAxe. Thank you for listening, and I will talk to you.